you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Brian Kelly. Tonight on Fast, a summer sizzler. Stocks jump as we kick off a new trading month. The Nasdaq closing at a new record high. We'll break down what is in store for your money in August straight ahead. Plus, a SPAC attack, another EV maker announcing big plans to go public. We'll speak with the CEO of Lordstown Motors. And later, a Bitcoin blitz. Why BK says the cryptocurrency is about to head, you guessed it even higher. <laughs> but we start off with a deal that has got Wall Street, Washington, and the world talking. Microsoft eyeing an acquisition of TikTok, and this comes after President Trump threatened to ban the video sharing app here in the U.S. over security concerns. The president then made an about-face and gave Microsoft the go-ahead to proceed with the deal. Shares of Microsoft rallying today. Let's get to Josh Lipton with the very latest. Josh. So, Melissa, President Trump also weighing in here. Take a listen to what he had to say today. It'll close down on September 15th unless Microsoft or somebody else is able to buy it and work out a deal, an appropriate deal. So the Treasury of the really the Treasury, I guess you would say, of the United States gets a lot of money. So why is Microsoft interested in TikTok? Well, it's a wildly popular app with 100 million users already here in the U.S. Engagement trends are strong. Analysts note that users already spend over an hour a day on the app. Tech analyst Patrick Moorhead emphasizes two broad reasons why he says this could make strategic sense. One, he argues Microsoft is relatively weak in consumer services with the exception of its Xbox Live gaming service. So CEO Satya Nadella could immediately become a much bigger player in consumer Consumer technology. Second, this is a potential moneymaker. Nadella could monetize that big pool of fans through advertising, a business that the company well understands. But there are real risks too. Microsoft's history and consumer-focused acquisitions is mixed, from Nokia's handset business to Mixer, its live streaming service. There's also the question of focus here. Nadella has concentrated on the enterprise market. Analysts say that has served his company very well and kept him out of that regulatory spotlight. Melissa, back to you. Josh, thank you. Josh Lichter with the latest on Microsoft TikTok. Cloud, cloud is a business that got Microsoft to where it is today, Guy Dami. So if you, Microsoft goes down this road of buying this business, well, it seems like it's the hottest property around in social media. Does that do Microsoft shareholders well? Probably, yeah. I mean, the market today told you absolutely yes. And, and a lot of people say it's style drift and, you know, this could lead them down a bad road. But you know, what are we talking about in terms of price tag here? I haven't, you know, I've seen anywhere from, you know, 40 to $50 billion. You probably know better than I. And it's, a, it's basically a rounding error for Microsoft, number one. And number two, the move in the stock more than paid for the deal. So it's hard not to like this. My real question is, because clearly I missed that day in college when the U.S. Treasury gets investment banking fees on deals that are done between two companies. I don't know how I missed it, but clearly I did. What, what exactly... Um, how does the U.S. Treasury come into this equation? I guess it's somewhat a rhetorical question, but, you know, this whole thing is fascinating to me on a number of levels. But to answer your original question, I don't think it's negative for Microsoft. And the market today told you it's positive. I mean, the order to divest is one interesting aspect of this whole affair. And then this 
I mean, when I read it, I, I immediately thought like a broker's fee, I guess, hearkening to Donald Trump's real estate days. I don't know if he thinks he gets 20 per Treasury, excuse me, gets 20 percent or, or what exactly the Treasury is going to get out of this whole thing, Karen. Um, one can only imagine. I, I, I have no idea or maybe what one has gotten already to have it be in this situation. I don't it really is crazy. I don't love the precedent at all. I feel like, you know, we're just sort of taunting China to have some sort of reciprocal response that I would imagine we really won't like very much. So I, I'm, I'm kind of perplexed by the whole thing. And I, I mean, I don't know what the right fee is. I don't, I, I mean, the whole thing is, that part is so crazy. He did, uh, Trump say, either to Microsoft or someone else. I don't know. I mean, Microsoft can compete with anyone in terms of price. Um, I don't know if there is a possibility of someone else, but I get also why Microsoft would sort of want to give it a try. Why not? Money is free to them, practically. Uh, I mean, they have cash, but if they wanted to do it with debt, it's practically free to them. So I know the moment TikTok doesn't make money, but I still think it's interesting for them to do. And clearly, as Guy pointed out, the stock market or the Microsoft holders really like it. Yeah. Beaks? Yeah, well, there's two things here. On the big kind of geopolitical, if you don't think that the global economy is fracturing at least into two pieces, then you're not paying attention because that's what the, this deal, the precedence of this deal is. Number two, and on the Microsoft front, I personally don't understand why Microsoft would want this. The only thing that makes sense is if they can get it at a discount because ByteDance is forced to divest it. Um, but I'm not sure. I mean, again, as Josh mentioned, they don't have a great history on, on the consumer side. I mean, I'm sure Guy still remembers the Zune. Uh, I still have one of those. That was an abject failure. I don't know what this does for them. I do think it, it you know, you, you lose focus. Um, so for me, I, I don't really like it. But you know what? I'm not the stock market, and the stock market liked it. Tim? Uh, this is exactly what Brian said. Love Brian. Love Guy. I mean, lo this is exactly why Microsoft wants it, because they're not here, because because everyone else, first of all, uh, that could be a buyer of this is is in Washington under the scrutiny of the government in terms of their social platforms that are too big. This totally makes sense. I mean, think about the business that they just told you about in gaming uh, and Xbox and even Azure and, and the fact that 90 percent of their market cap probably is enterprise. That's the whole point. That's why you would be going after this here. To me, this is this makes a ton of sense because they're probably the only guys that can step in and buy it, at least with this type of ability to navigate both Washington, navigate the financials. And yes, they are getting it at a beaten down valuation. If you're getting this, you know, anywhere from, I don't know, seven, eight to ten times, uh, you know, where these guys are in terms of revenue, um, that's EBITDA, excuse me, it's extraordinary. And I think it's actually been proven to be, we've talked about on this show why Facebook is running scared of TikTok. Um, so why wouldn't Microsoft be running towards TikTok? It makes a lot of sense. I like it. All right. Uh, let's get more on what this deal could mean for Microsoft. Let's bring in Jeffries, Jared Weisfeld. Jared, great to speak with you. You also think this deal makes a whole lot of sense um, in terms of the synergies across the consumer business. What do you think this deal could enhance for Microsoft? I think at the end of the day, the biggest takeaway should be from a Microsoft perspective, when you have the ability to go ahead and integrate a lot of the capabilities that TikTok, TikTok has, you think about the technology stack that TikTok has, and it's incredibly sophisticated. So if you can then leverage that and marry that with some of the internal capabilities that Microsoft already has on Azure, which is the second largest uh, cloud service prov provider on the, on the planet, 
Uh, I think the the capabilities are are dramatic. Uh, TikTok knows what you want before you even know that. So when you leverage that with the AI capabilities of Azure, I think it makes a lot of sense. And then to the earlier point that was brought up, I think that's actually key. If you then have the ability to leverage that and bring it into gaming, bring that into Cortina, the digital search engine, bring that into Bing, I think the uh, the possibilities are are quite significant. So it, it certainly makes a lot of sense. And obviously, the, the stock market rewarded Microsoft today, and you've added more than uh, the TikTok valuation uh, in Microsoft's market cap alone today. Uh, is there a risk, though, that, that TikTok is the next snap? I mean, in that snap has run into user growth issues and monetization issues, or is finding a home in Microsoft going to sort of bypass that possibility as an outcome? It's a fair point, but you almost have a free call option. If, if you're Satya Nadella, you have the ability to go ahead and acquire the asset potentially on the cheap. And if you think about it, you've got one party, Microsoft, which is potentially the only party that's available to acquire something of this size with with, uh, with regulatory concerns. And then if you've got TikTok on the other side, they're obviously desperate from a seller's perspective. So valuation, I'm sure, plays part of it. And then strategically, if you think about the ability to go ahead and integrate uh, integrate uh, the technology into the Microsoft stack, uh, Satya is getting a free look at this. And not only can it potentially accelerate the growth drivers of his existing business, he then has a free call option on expanding the total addressable market to go ahead and think about competition versus Facebook and Snap, et cetera. We, we swiped at the idea that China could retaliate uh, for the U.S. forcing ByteDance to divest. Is that a concern of yours as you look out across some of the tech companies that you cover that operate in China? I think that's a really important point. And there is a global chess match that's occurring right now. It's just not China versus the U.S. as it relates to TikTok versus Microsoft. You've seen the uh, the U.S. and Trump administration from a Huawei perspective get, uh, get pretty entangled. And uh, Trump has certainly made his... Uh, his priorities clear as uh, the global uh, the global footprint sets its stage with with if, if you cross Trump's line on Huawei, you're effectively going against the U.S. And you've, you're seeing that in China as well right now with uh, with SoftBank, which is a Japanese entity, which is trying to go ahead and potentially IPO or sell ARM. But then there are complications with the JV and uh, that's sitting in China. So I think the I think the China implications are real. I think that the potential for retaliation is real. So it does have to be delicate uh, in the context of the geopolitical stage, because that is absolutely a consideration. Within technology, are there certain subsectors that you think are, are most, most most vulnerable, excuse me, um, to China forcing some sort of action or divestiture? Is software perhaps an area that is most at risk? And, and if so, why isn't there any sort of uh, discount evaluation of these names? Software is actually probably one of the best positions from a geopolitical mm-hmm. perspective when you think about uh, when you think about uh, tensions with China. Just given that a majority of revenue is actually derived domestically here in the states, uh, to the extent that tensions flare up again between U.S. and China from a geopolitical perspective, it's the semiconductor industry that usually comes under under a lot of attention. You saw what happened uh, when uh, when we added. Uh, Huawei to the entity list and the implications associated with that. So I would say to the extent that uh, that tensions flare up, you should absolutely keep an eye on on the semiconductor sector and the potential implications there. All right. Jared, great to speak with you. Thanks for your thoughts. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Jared Weisfeld of Jeffries, Guy Adami. What do you say? You bring up the point, Mel. I mean, again, the, listen, clearly the market does not care about this. I understand. But this is just one more salvo in this whole U.S.-China situation. And I understand this is probably not going to be a great analogy or a great sort of um, comparison. But what if the Chinese wake up and say, you know what, Apple, every Apple store in China, you have to sell 
Otherwise, we're closing shop. Do you don't think that's a possibility? I mean, maybe that's a little out there on the curve, but given what we've seen over the last six months, I don't think anything's impossible. So, again, Tim is spot on in terms of Microsoft. It makes sense. I'm not discounting that. My comment about style drift is exactly that. That's been a concern, but it doesn't mean it's not the right move. And, again, the move in Microsoft today more than paid for this deal. But I think to your earlier question, I think this has far broader ramifications in terms of this U.S.-China situation. There have been reports that the administration will announce measures against a broad array of Chinese-owned software companies. Um, Tim Seymour, is this a concern that the markets are, are just looking past a little bit too much? I mean, we didn't think that we would get here with, well, maybe we did with ByteDance and TikTok, um, but maybe we're not taking seriously enough the possible retaliatory measures China could take against U.S. companies, which, w- which could really be, um, I don't want to say devastating, but it could impact valuations for sure. Well, if you think about the companies that, that we, we'd be thinking about here that have the most exposure to China, it's really Apple, as Guy pointed out. But I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not so sure uh, that the valuations of Google and Facebook uh, really reflect a significant amount of China. So, so uh, you know, I'm not terribly concerned about that. I, I think the, the, the bluster and the focus on China and the common enemy and the things that, uh, first of all, make a ton of sense. Uh, and I think are, are fair, uh, but then also the, the, the dynamic of just the, the political salvo that's attached to this, um, I think that's what it is. Again, I, I think it's a case where if anybody, Microsoft benefits from this uh, and the stress around this, and by working with the White House, making it very clear, doing a public show of we will make sure, and whether it's the capital markets revenues that need to be allocated or, or not, but that they're very clear, we will solve these issues with the government before we move forward or there's no deal. I mean, what, what more can you do? And what more, you know, I think in this environment should they be doing? And I, I, I like the tactic. All right, let's get now to the latest developments in the coronavirus relief bill. Kayla Tausche has been following them all. She's got the newest details. Kayla. Melissa, the top negotiators from the Trump administration and Democrats in Congress met today at Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office. They met for about two and a half hours and afterwards said that the purpose of the meeting was to go painstakingly through each dollar in each side's proposal, the Republicans' $1 trillion proposal, Democrats' $3 trillion proposal, and figure out where each dollar went. Speaking after the meeting, the top Senate Democrat Chuck Schumer said there was, it was still going to take a bit longer to reach a deal. He did say that there was some urgency to the effort. We are really getting an understanding of each side's position, and we're making some progress on certain issues, moving closer together. There are a lot of issues that are still outstanding, but I think there is a desire to get something done as soon as we can. Uh, So what are those outstanding issues? I mentioned the total price tag just a moment ago, but also the money for state and local government. Democrats are proposing a trillion dollars. President Trump today said that is still a non-starter for him. They disagree over the amount of money that unemployed workers should get as a supplement to what states are paying. And they also disagree on how schools should be able to spend federal funding. They each allocate about $100 billion in their respective proposals to schools. But Republicans believe that the large majority of that money should go to schools who reopen for in-person learning, despite the fact that Senator Schumer says there has been progress made. Melissa, we don't know exactly what that progress is, so we await the details, which is where the devil usually lies. Back to you. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche. 
weathering the tropical storm in Washington, D.C. Um, for more on the, how the stimulus bill could impact stocks, let's bring in Emily Rowland, the co-chief investment strategist at John Hancock. Emily, welcome back to you. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me. The markets seem to be impervious to the delays that we're having in, in a coronavirus relief package being passed. Does this mean that you think that there's that this is not a catalyst, in fact, for stocks has, has you know, has not been the, the, the new the new bill, that is, or, or that the markets just simply complacent about it eventually getting passed? You know, in our view, fiscal stimulus as a catalyst is really fading at this point. And really what the markets are focused on is a solution for the virus itself in the form of a cure or a vaccine or a treatment in order for the economy globally to really get back on its own two feet here. And we think that creates a pretty challenging investing environment. Uh, there's more volatility associated with it. We almost think of the markets trading like a biotech stock in, in which when there's good days, you know, investors may be reaching for risk. And then we get a pullback in terms of the timeline for a vaccine or in terms of, you know, the, the path towards a development and investors may get whipsawed on days like that. So we actually are very focused on really making sure that investors are staying disciplined in this environment. We think a balanced portfolio is a huge advantage right now. There's been a lot of ink spilled as of late on sort of the death of the 60-40 portfolio. We think it's alive and well right now. And so we think, you know, that having that balance and that discipline should allow investors to refrain from making so some of those mistakes that can easily be made when the market trades um, on, on one specific driver as it is right now in our view. What are you recommending in terms of tech exposure? Uh, because, I mean, it's it's really the biggest stocks in, in tech land that are making the new highs, that are pulling the Nasdaq up to new highs, that are dragging the S&P 500 along with it. Um, so do you say to balance away from those names or embrace that move? We've actually been overweight technology as a sector for over five years at John Hancock Investment Management. And, you know, we certainly recognize the great run that mega cap tech has had. And, and we certainly also recognize the concentration risk. But one of the biggest arguments out there is that this part of the market's very expensive. And if you look at forward P.E. ratios right now, the tech sector is trading at about a 16 percent premium to the S&P 500. That premium over time has actually been closer to 25 percent. Uh, so we're nowhere near tech bubble levels right now. You know, tech's trading at about a 25 uh, times forward P.E. ratio right now. Am I jumping up and down and getting excited about that? Uh, no, uh, but we're not excited about much right now, as, as most things across the board are looking very expensive. The other element here is we're just not seeing that kind of level of ex irrational exuberance uh, mm -hmm. creeping into the market as far as investors go today. Um, you're not seeing really excessive optimism. There's pockets of it, of course, when we talk about the rise of the sort of day trader, the Robin Hood right. accounts, that's there. But looking at fund flow data, investors are still sitting on a big pile of cash and we're just not seeing that yet. So we still like tech. Okay. Emily, great to speak with you. Thank you. Emily Rowland. John Hancock. Thank you. Brian Kelly, you've long said that the, the biggest risk to the market is the fiscal, fiscal stimulus package not passing. Here we are. Yeah. When is that a risk? I, I still think it's a risk. I'm surprised that the market is kind of shrugging it off. My best guess is that people are thinking, well, okay, a couple day delay is not going to 
to matter that much. But I just don't know what incentive the, the Democrats have politically uh, to really give in a lot here. So I think it go on longer than we expected. At some point, maybe the market cares. I think that's the biggest risk. I mean, if you look at what's going on in the economy, we talk about what's going on with tech, but something like the senior loan officer survey came out and it showed that, you know, the big companies, you've got all the money you want, but the smaller companies, lending is, is tightening. So if that continues to happen and you get people that are getting evicted and they no longer have $600 a week extra to spend, that'll eventually hit earnings uh, in the S&P 500. But until investors care about it, I guess it's a non-event, but I still think that is, you want to call it the black swan, the big risk, whatever it is, I still think that's the biggest risk this market faces. What do you think is the biggest risk, Karen? I mean, we just went through the first 13 minutes of the show talking about China and, and possibly China retaliating against U.S. technology companies. Yeah, I think that's a risk. I think that's a reasonably high risk. But we've seen in the past the market sort of shrugs off some of the tensions. Which we've been this, in this for, what, two years now of various, you know, uh, shots across the bow from each side. And so that's, I think that will happen. We will see something like that. I think to me the biggest risk is probably an upside risk of a vaccine quicker than people expect. That's the, the sort of black swan, I guess to the upside people I think are discounting maybe won't be anything by the end of this year on a broad scale. But um, if it happens sooner than that, I think that's upside. I think that's that's a really interesting risk that I have not heard many people elaborate on. And I'm, I'm just trying to think in my head, uh, obviously, the reopening trades would probably rip higher. But what happens to tech leadership uh, in that scenario, Guy? Do, do we have a sort of yeah. do we have a sell off in the sort of the quote unquote defensive names that it, gotten us here? History would suggest that. But I mean, I tell you, the upside risk trade is something that Tim's talked about for a while. So people put it out there, Tim specifically. You know, with that said, I mean, just think about quickly. Uh, in two trading days, Apple added close to 300 billion, with a B, dollars in market cap, which, you know, it's just a number until you realize that I think there are only 22 companies in the S&P 500 that have a market cap that big in the first place. So you know, we throw around these numbers like they're nothing anymore. And I heard what Emily said about tech only being 16% higher valuation-wise the S&P 500, which is true, except that the S&P 500, in my opinion, is at a ridiculous valuation. So I, I get what's going on here clearly. To answer your question, does a vaccine cause a sell-off? I have no idea. But, you know, I also have to take into consideration that in, in order for a vaccine, in my limited knowledge, to be effective, I think 70% of the population has to take it. And every poll I read suggests that 40% of the people at least have said they won't take it. So there are just a lot of things out there that the market doesn't seem to care about. And you layer on, uh, you know, the, the idea that even if you do take it, Tim, will you change your behavior? I don't know if the first batch of people who take that vaccine will change their behavior enormously enough to spark a renaissance in hotels and, you know, flying and all that stuff. I, I agree. And, and therefore, those new normal trades, sorry, guy, I know you hate the expression, but I, I think they're here. I think they're here for a little bit longer. And, and I would just go back to, you know, and we talked a little bit also just about the 60-40 the, the split. I mean, today, Google issued 
$10 billion of debt from five-year out to 40-year maturities. Their 10-year were 58 over treasuries. I mean, you know, do you want to be diving into the debt market at these levels? I don't know. Look to Japan. Maybe this is a great place to buy uh, one of the best credits out there. Um, the other good news, though, out today was that ISM number, uh, especially the new orders component, blew away all expectations. I realize it's one data point. Uh, but when you want to look at manufacturing activity, which we know is not the backbone of this economy anymore, things have gotten a whole lot better. So um, I, I, you know, right now, I, I think with or without stimulus, this market has enough from the Federal Reserve to hold ground. Remember, we're within 90 points now of all time highs on the S&P. And we're talking about, uh, you know, whether the stimulus plan is something that's going to take. I mean, we look, we've been debating the stimulus uh, this next round for the last three weeks to a month. And the market continues to make higher yeah, highs. Exactly. Coming up, we're still in the thick of earnings season, and we've got our eye on a couple of big big ones after hours. We'll dive into the results from Take Two and Virgin Galactic, plus Bitcoin surging to its highest levels of the year. How much higher can it go from here? We'll get some answers when Fast Money returns. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a pair of earnings alerts for you. Take two and Virgin Galactic, both on the move after reporting results. Frank Holland is standing by on Virgin Galactic, but we start with Josh Lipton on Take Two. Josh. So, Melissa, I checked in with Michael Pactor over at Wedbush, has covered this name in this industry for a long time to get his two cents. Uh, Pactor would certainly point to that 75 cent bottom line beat. Q2 guidance, uh, he would call very strong. Yes, uh, guidance revenue there expected to be down sequentially, but Pactor says that's likely to ultimately prove conservative. Uh, CEO Strauss Zelnick on the call says the results will be driven by a few key franchises. NBA 2K achieved $1 billion in net booking since the launch now. Engagement increasing. Grand Theft Auto 5, he says, continues to exceed expectations. It has sold in 135 million units. Grand Theft Auto Online on track to establish a new net bookings record. Zenek says the company has the strongest uh, development pipeline in its history. It is double, he says, what it was five years ago. And he says they're preparing for, of course, this transition to a no console cycle that will be better platform, he says, for audiences. Finally, he was asked by analysts about the lasting impact of this pandemic, the lockdowns, the environment that we're in. Uh, Zelnick saying it is hard to predict, but he thinks for the consumer this has intensified the shift to new interactive entertainment. People have come back to video games, he says. There will be a long-lasting increase in demand. There are only a few companies, including Take-Two, that can really capitalize on that, he said, Melissa. All right, Josh, thanks. Josh Lipton, uh, bookings were the real standout. Full-year guidance, obviously, coming in ahead of expectations. Uh, also helping the stock here. Guy, do you buy that, that uh, line of thinking, that consumer behavior, that consumers will stick around even after the lockdowns and still game? <clears throat> 100%. And this is, you know, Tim mentioned, you know, I, I generally don't like new terms, but new normal is one of those new terms. And <laughs> this is that. And by the way, you know, take two is a name we mentioned pre-pandemic. And what's happened over the last six months has just accelerated some of the things that we thought might happen. You know, we, I think we've been pretty steadfast in terms of take two electronic arts, 
The EA number was very good. I thought this take-two number, this quarter notwithstanding, I think the full-year guidance and the fact that operating margins are now north of 30% have people encouraged. And I think, you know, despite the move this stock has had, I think it continues to go higher. Tim. I, I love it. Uh, you know, I love this stock. I love ATVI tomorrow. Again, this number today, these net bookings grew 136%. Net revenues up 54%. The guide coming into this is why the reason that the stock is popping is nobody expected this guide. Um, so the guide's very strong. NBA 2K, look, this is what ESPN was showing. You know, NBA players playing, playing this game. I mean, this is what else have we had to do? There's haves and there's have nots. ATVI tomorrow. I think if you look at all of these gaming stocks and these interactive gaming stocks, uh, it's been a two-year kind of basing and grinding, and now we're seeing a lot of these charts start to break out. This, this uh, take-two chart, uh, you know, really, I mean, this is, this is what you've been waiting for, and I think you're buying the breakout. All right, let's get to our Virgin Galactic now. That stock is falling after its earnings. Frank Collins got the details. Frank. Well, Melissa, shares of Virgin Galactic falling sharply after hours after the company announced a planned offering of 20 million shares expected to generate as much as $460 million that Virgin Galactic says will be used for general corporate purposes, things like working capital and CapEx. Also, the space tourism company announcing a loss in EPS, but really that was widely expected. Another key metric did show improvement. Virgin Galactic's One Small Step program that's qualified prospects that have paid a $1,000 deposit. That grew 75% sequentially from 400 prospects in Q1 to about 700 in Q2. EBITDA losses also basically flat year over year. Before the bell, Virgin Galactic announcing a memorandum of understanding with Rolls-Royce to develop a supersonic plane for subspace flights that can hold as many as 19 passengers. Still, space is the top priority. Virgin Galactic says it's planning two more test launches from Spaceport America if those go well, keyword is if, Virgin Galactic says in Q1 2021, plans are for founder Sir Richard Branson to actually take a space flight. Key date for this company. Back over to you. Frank, um, forgive my space ignorance, but um, when you mentioned uh, the, the qualifications program, the astronaut program, right. how is that different from the reservations? Because my understanding is that the number of reservations has stood at 600 since September of 2019 to this most recent report. You know, Melissa, that, that's actually a, a very important metric right there. So the reservations are people that have actually paid. And the company has about $80 million in their bank account from people, about 600 people who have paid to take that flight when it really happens. What we're talking about are prospects, people who say they'll all put down $1,000 for the opportunity mm. to be on one of those flights eventually after those 600 people get their opportunity. It's a big difference between $1,000 and actually <laughs> paying yes. up the rest. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Frank, thank you. Frank thank Holland. You. Um, on Virgin Galactic. I don't know, Karen, what do you what do you make of this, uh, this whole story? <laughs> it's a story stock. Let's be clear. Well, it's a story I stock. Mean, you know, the, yeah. it, definitely. And I mean, they're 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 happy with where it's trading. So, uh, you know, so they're using the opportunity to sell another 20 million shares, um, which is good for them. They're going to need it. The, I mean, to me, I, I, you can't. I, I couldn't pay enough money to not have to do the space flight. But the, the Mach three, this subspace. <laughs> extremely quick air travel that is potentially very interesting all that having been said though this this story stock i don't know how to model story stocks and this would fall squarely into the story stock section yeah i mean kudos to 386 who's been uh, on space for a long time and has has loved this story stock but i mean it's really gotten a b the benefit bk of, of this whole sort of ev futuristic slash spac boom. I mean, it's the confluence of two hot areas in the markets right now. Yeah, it reminds me very much of Tesla several years ago. 
you've got kind of a fantastical idea that if and when it works, it can actually change how we do things. You've got a charismatic founder and leader. And you've got people that say, well, I, you know, it, it doesn't make money. Nobody cares if this company makes money. It's a venture capital deal. And what I mean by that is you're buying the idea. So for me, on this sell-off with 20 million shares being sold, you buy the stock, you put it in your drawer. Five years from now, you're going to be able to buy yourself one of those wow. space flights. So this, because this, that's what this is. This the top ranks drawer, up BK. There with Tesla. So that top yeah. drawer is getting crowded. It's got Tesla in there. I don't I know if 3D printing is still in there, BK. But, I mean, they, these are 3D all top, printing's top still drawer. Factory in a box. Factory in a box, top drawer kind of trades. I don't know. Guy, what do you yeah. think of BK's top drawer? I think a lot of things about BK. You know, what else I think, Mel, is, well, in terms of space, real quick, yeah. you know, see where they price the secondary and trade against that. And good, kudos to Steve Grasso, as you mentioned, number one. Number two, you know, there's certain teams in baseball, the Mets, for example, that need to do certain things to bring fans Why? into Come the on. stadium. Come and on. these bobblehead, and these bobblehead nights are a big thing. But I got to tell you, that BK bobblehead night, I mean, if you look over his right shoulder, that's probably the greatest giveaway that the Mets ever did at Shea Stadium. Kudos to you, BK. <laughs> I love the laugh track. The laugh track really enhances the funniness of the whole joke. Don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> coming up, two more retailers joining the list. The company is going bankrupt this year, but are there even more to come? A few names that should be on your radar. But first, we're getting ready for the latest electric vehicle maker to enter the market. Our exclusive interview with Lordstown Motors CEO Steve Burns when Fast Money returns. Every day. Thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com, that's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Electric vehicle stocks racing higher today, and there's a new player that just got their ticket to ride. Our Phil LeBeau joins us now with the Lordstown Motor CEO, Steve Burns. Phil. Thank you, Melissa. Let's bring in Steve Burns, who is the founder and CEO of Lordstown Motors, joining us from the company's facility that they're still working on in Lordstown, Ohio. Uh, Steve, just to bring the audience up to speed, you guys announced uh, a SPAC IPO deal today with Diamond Peak Holdings, valued at $1.6 billion. Uh, you expect it to close in the fourth quarter. How did this all come together, and how long were you guys uh, in talks with Diamond Peak, so to speak? Uh, we started looking at SPACs. You know, COVID kind of 
put the brakes on some of the private funding we were talking to. So we started talking to SPACs maybe three months ago. We interviewed four or five of them. Uh, I, I did find out that all SPACs are not created equal, and uh, you've got to find one that's a good fit. And Diamond Peak, uh, their CEO really uh, melded with our, our vision and our team. So it took about two and a half months to get, uh, get it to this point. Did you see greater urgency once you saw the reaction uh, that the market had to what's happened with Nikola? Now you have Fisker. They've announced their own SPAC. Uh, did you see a greater urgency to say, hey, let's get this done as quickly as possible? Well, you know, I, I, I have to be honest. You know, it does seem like Wall Street goes from thing to thing and, you know, peaks and valleys. And uh, if we were going to do it, we wanted to do it while it was, uh, the appetite was there. And we really felt like we differentiated ourselves from the others that had come out. You know, we have a factory and a prototype, and we're marching towards production. And so we thought it was uh, suitable for, for a SPAC and, and to be up on the NASDAQ. Steve, what's your reaction when you hear critics? And they're on our air. There were a couple on today who were saying, look, this is a frenzy that's going on when it comes to these EV-related SPACs. And at the end of the day, the investor is going to get burned, that there is just not going to be the kind of return that many people may be expecting from these SPACs. Well, at the end of the day, we have to make a great truck. If we make a great truck and we have happy customers, no matter what our financing facility is, you know, we'll be successful. So, Look, this is capital-intensive business. We, uh, we bought a full-functioning factory from General Motors, uh, 2,000 robots. I think you can see some of them behind me here. Uh, the prototype's running great, and we've got a great team. So, uh, you know, we can't really look at, uh, at, at how others are doing. We just have to march towards our, our production date. We've got 27,000 orders. We've got customers really, really wanting the truck. You know, there is no electric pickup truck out yet, so... Uh, there needs to be one. And that behind you, I think, is that the endurance behind you, a prototype? Or we're looking at a picture yeah, now yeah. Uh, of the prototype of the endurance. It's on schedule uh, for production to begin next year, am I correct? And then when do we actually see deliveries begin, where somebody who puts down a deposit and can buy an endurance electric pickup truck? Uh, the deliveries to customers are just about a year from now, almost exactly. Steve, on that note, I wanted to ask you if you, if you get a sense as to um, what consumers' intentions are. I mean, you, you hope that the intention is to take delivery of that pickup truck, but you, you opened it to reservations at a unique time in that there are a lot of other pickup trucks that are not yet on the market, as you point out, that are also taking reservations. So people might have multiple reservations and have no, no uh, desire to take all, all the pickup trucks. So um, in terms of how you stack up, where do you think the endurance stacks up versus, say, the cyber, yeah. which looks like it has a greater range than the endurance, um, or the the Badger from Nikola, which uh, which is a joint, which is a hybrid uh, EV hydrogen fuel cell truck? Right, right. Great question. Really, and this is really hard to do in modern modern automotive world. To have your own lane where you're all by yourself is almost impossible. But uh, all those folks you're talking about really aren't in our lane. We are a full-size pickup truck, so a Nikola, a Rivian, uh, those are mid-size. I think they've classified themselves as luxury adventure. We are a working truck, so we are for fleets. We are priced the same as a competitive uh, internal combustion truck. Uh, we'll, save, we'll save a fleet $20,000 over five years that they own our truck versus a comparable internal combustion. So we sell on economics. I mean, uh, the... Emissions-free is great, but it's got to pencil out for our customers. So nobody is catering to fleets. 
Uh, the cyber truck that you talk about, I'm trying to. I'm not sure uh, what market they're catering towards, but it's really not the working person. Uh, we don't think. And Steve, real quick, uh, are you worried about the electric F-150? Because let's be honest, they cater to a lot of fleet customers. You know, I think this is a case where the incumbents are not going to bring innovation. Uh, the incumbents really are uh, saddled with. Uh, pickup trucks are number one, number two, and number three vehicle in the United States. So they are very high volume, very high margin. So imagine um, Ford coming out with the Ford 150. Uh, they're not likely to say, buy this electric 150, don't buy our gas one. It's, uh, it spews stuff out the tailpipes at the back. So they're really kind of compromised. So I, I think a, a singularly focused, we have one mind to bring emission-free uh, pickup trucks to the working uh, people of the world. And... And our price point, I don't think anybody's going to be able to touch it, even, even Ford. Steve Burns, the founder and CEO of Lordstown Motors. Steve, thank you for joining us, coming to us from the Lordstown plant there in northeast Ohio. Melissa, I can't wait to see that plant. I've been there when it was a GM right. plant, and now they're retooling it to make electric pickup trucks. At some point, we'll get out and about and finally get into some of these plants again. All right, Phil, thank you very much. Thanks for the interview. Phil LeBeau, uh, along with Steve Burns of Lordstown. Um, by the way, uh, Workhouse, we, we showed that coming into this interview. Workhouse was up about 25% today. Workhouse owns about 10% of, uh, of the company of Lordstown Motors. What do you think, Tim? I mean, they actually have a factory. The guy was in the factory. They're going to make trucks. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's interesting, and I think it's interesting based upon the economics that have to work. Otherwise, they don't really have a reason for being. So, um, look, I, I, I think it's a very interesting story. I, I think uh, the other part of this story that also is getting some attention is, has nothing to do with them. And, and to be clear, this whole focus on SPACs is important in this marketplace because SPACs, again, the acronym is Special Purpose Acquisition Corp, have become a very popular funding vehicle or a backdoor way for companies to list. Uh, I see it in cannabis. There's a ton of SPACs. doesn't mean that they're bad. Um, it just means that this is a, a liquidity uh, of the moment kind of a, of a vehicle. But look, it, it, the entire space has been, as we follow the, the retail investor trends um, alive and well, look at that performance today. Look at NEO. Uh, they announced they're going to deliver 3,500 uh, vehicles, better than expected, and that they can increase production for the third quarter. Uh, they announced numbers next week. I mean, it comes down to profitability at some point, but we've been through this with, with Tesla all the way through. These are story stocks, but uh, there's no question that the business model needs to make sense. And in many cases, uh, they need to have a truck that someone can drive tomorrow. Diamond Peak, by the way, I mean, to the, to the point of this, these blank check companies latching onto whatever is hot, it launched initially with the intent of going into or finding some sort of real estate related target. So obviously this is a little bit of a shift, which the company is fully entitled to do as a blank check company. Um, but Guy Dami, I, I know that you like to keep up on automotive news. Uh, and on Sunday's sure. edition of Automotive News, Elon Musk actually had an interview and said, look, if the cyber truck is too weird looking or futuristic, I forgot what he what term he used, we'll, we'll sell normal copycat EV pickup trucks. We'll just shift gears. We won't sell that totally, you know, out of out of this world sort of looking pickup truck and we'll just make yeah. a, a regular one. He's in the zone right now. I mean, certain times in life, I've never happened to me, but sometimes people get in the zone where whatever <laughs> they do, they do no wrong. And that's where Elon Musk and Tesla is. And I listen, I've said it. I'll say it again. I attribute a lot of it. Go back to the interview 
that President Trump had with Joe Kernan in Davos. And ever since that day, when they mentioned Elon Musk and our geniuses and the people that created the wheel, that stock has only gone straight higher. In terms of Neo, real quick, because Tim mentioned it, July deliveries were up 322% year over year. Totally get it. The stocks had a nice bounce. But just go back and look at the note that Goldman Sachs put out, I think, uh, two or three weeks ago. I think they have a sell rating on the name with a $7 price target. You know, there are two sides of all these stories, and, and the other side sometimes needs to be spoken about as well. Yep. Coming up, we're getting ready for earnings from Disney, but will it be a fairy tale report for the Magic Kingdom? We'll break down what options traders expect for this crucial quarter when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Lord & Taylor filing for bankruptcy today, joining a growing list of retailers slammed by the coronavirus pandemic. That includes names like Neiman Marcus, GNC, Lucky Brand, J. Crew, J.C. Penney, and many others. Karen's been doing some digging, spotted a couple of names that could be added to this list. Karen, what are they? Well, one is sort of a perennial one that we talk about, which is GameStop. And, you know, as you can imagine... The, the sort of secular change, but now you can see what's happening to the stock and the bonds, and that's where I always look. And these bonds aren't giving you a whole lot of confidence that they're going to survive here. So that's one. And then the other one is Party City, who started their downward trend when they ran out of helium in, uh, at Halloween. And it's gotten a lot worse. And you saw today uh, Phil Murphy from New Jersey saying cutting down the size of parties from 100 to 25 that's bad for Party City. They're trying desperately, exchanging their debt, trying to stay alive. But it seems like a restructuring is definitely in the offing here. So sad for both of those. Yeah. Brian Kelly, I know that, uh, you know, you don't need as many streamers if you've got 25 people versus 100. Exactly. I haven't bought a pinata in months. And so I can see why Party City is <laughs> not doing well. Um, I, you know. I, I think that's good. Unfortunately, I think Party City is going to have a really rough time. And then on GameStop, what's really interesting, we were talking about Take Two and how people are moving away from the console. That might actually be a problem for GameStop as well. You know, it's funny that Brian Kelly mentioned pinata because he actually <laughs> brought a pinata for the team. And we, we have a fast money pinata, which is, I believe, at the NASDAQ, maybe still. <laughs> Hopefully. Why it wouldn't is. we? So it's, it's funny that you specifically said pinata. Anyway, up next, Disney out with earnings tomorrow. Will the quarter be a beauty or a beast? We'll dive into the options market to bring you that trade. Much more fast straight ahead. Mark your calendars. Next Wednesday, join the CNBC Small Business Playbook Virtual Summit with Facebook Sheryl Sandberg, Goldman Sachs's Margaret Anadu, plus entrepreneurs Kevin O'Leary and Gary Vaynerchuk. It's all about providing small business owners with resources to survive today's crisis and, a pro and provide a path forward to thrive tomorrow. Go to cnbcevents.com slash Playbook to register. But up next, Disney earnings on deck as the stock losing its magic here. That trade ahead. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back. Disney on deck with earnings tomorrow after the bell. Let's get to Mike Coe with the options action. Mike. Hi, Melissa. Put significantly outpaced calls today and ultimately traded about two times the average daily put volume at over 80,000 contracts. And right now, the options market is implying a move of about 5%, a little bit larger than the 2.2%. It is typically averaged after earnings. And the most 
active options contracts were the August 115 puts, part of a 115-105 put spread, a trade that Tony actually outlined on Options Action last Friday. Seems retail traders are making bearish bets that Disney's going to be a little bit disappointing out of earnings. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. For more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. At Disney, the story I think is well known. Delays in Mulan, parks rolling out slower. This stock has been sideways since the middle of May, and I think you've actually seen a good consolidation stay long into this number. Chairwoman. Yes, from my very small risk guard book, Tiffany. They're plugging away at all the regulatory approvals, and I think Louis Vuitton is going to close. Brian Kelly. Well, for me, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and say, buy space, Virgin Galactic. You can literally say, go into the moon on that one. And into BK's top shelf, Guy Dami. That's right, top drawer. Those, top those drawer. BK bobbleheads, you know, I see it on the Etsy. The BK bobbleheads are flying off the shelf, number one. Number two, we have the great Tom Rogers on tomorrow to break mm-hmm. down DIS, number two. And number three, Toll Brothers can make a run to that uh, February high, Mel. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.